Welcome to Moments of Clarity. My name is Matthew Sortino and with me is Toby Kent. Hey Matt. Hi everyone. Before we go any further, Matt and I would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast, Moments of Clarity, from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and of course any elders who may be listening. And for those of you beyond Australia, this is a really important part of the recognition and, and healing process uh, that Australia is in very early days of undertaking uh, with its First Nations people. But it's important to us, so thank you for that, and into the show. Thank you, Toby. Moments of Clarity is a podcast that Toby and I co-host, and our aim really is to do a little bit of entertaining, but also informing you on some of the work that people are doing around Australia and the world that is making this world a better place as well as how can we sort of embody and start building up some of the um, the lessons that are learned from these people both personally and professionally along the way. So that's our aim, that's our hope. I, I, I love the themes of, of what we explore and, and hopefully our listeners do too. But would it be fair to say that when we came in today that there was something bothering you, something getting under the skin? Yeah, it's a good, good pick-up, Toby. Um, I am. I pride myself on being upbeat, bubbly, choosing my attitude and uh, just a little down this week. Not not sad, mm-hmm. just... I'm pleased uh, so you're not sad. Lacking, <laughs> lacking energy or something. And, and, you know, it gets busy, you know, we're at the third month of winter, right in the depths of it. And although today was a nice day, it, you know, it does um, become a grind. But I don't know. There's a lot going on right now. There's a lot going on. I, I don't know how um, you feel. I don't know how the listeners feel. Um, but we've got tension upon tension in every aspect of society. You've got all the stuff going on with the US and its politics and, and with Trump today. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the FBI raids his house and all of a sudden it seems like they're part of the uh, the conspiracy to, to get this... Innocent man, um, bring him down, you know. Um, and you couple that with what's going on with China and, and with Taiwan and do people not understand how horrible war is and war would be? I mean, I've actually had a few dreams the last few nights where I'm thinking like I, I'm, I'm in a war zone and it's terrifying in my dreams. No, that's just what it's like having a 10-week-old baby, right? <laughs> that's right. But, uh, but this is happening upon, you know, Ukraine is still in the midst of an invasion, a, a horrible invasion, and there seems to be fossil fuel crises, the COVID crisis. There's, it's all going on. Now, that's on the outside, outside of my sphere of influence. So mm-hmm. I think I've done a bit of work to make sure that that doesn't get me down. It has in the past. It won't today. What can I do about it? But then going into the, the inner circle, I've actually found myself being distracted Mm-hmm. Losing focus and possibly just eye off the goal that I've set, and and it comes down to really two things that I really care about: being true to myself mm-hmm. and having that you know identity that I want to to live by, who I am and who I want to be, how I want to be perceived by others. Having a strong community and friendship and a sense of belonging with people and family is a key part and key component of that. I want to be a dad that is looked up to and a, and a partner, a, a husband, a, well, a fiancé at the moment, you know, that he's looked up to um, and works well with, you know, 
within this family unit as well as my extended family and I want to be that and I've learnt that I think just through your your asking that mm-hmm. yes I'm a little bit down bogged down and and distracted but you know that is in my sphere of influence my control I should say you know my control um, it's in within my control to turn it around and be that person I want to be so you know you've you've helped me unpack in six minutes I usually get charged you know by the hour for um, this. And well, I, I would let you use the sofa, but then no one would hear the mic. So. <laughs> but, you know, I think that's super important. So, yeah, thanks for acknowledging that I've been a little bit down and thanks for allowing me to maybe spring back up and choose my attitude a little bit. Yeah, and, and there was some part of uh, we were chatting uh, as we kind of built up to this around some things that I've been doing and I've been spending a fair bit of time recently with some, uh, some of the people that I work with uh, on a project up in the Yarra Valley, which is about 60 kilometres, 80 kilometres east of Melbourne. Beautiful part of the world. Some of the early gold discoveries in Victoria were out that way and it's got these uh, amazing uh, forests and the Yarra River uh, originates or uh, part of its upstream is is the so wonderful part of the world. Also, the flip side of that is quite remote with all the trees uh, and the topography uh, very... Uh, at risk of bushfire going wrong. Uh, and so we're working on a project to help the community up there be um, better prepared for things going wrong. And there's such a fen- fundamental part of that work, and we tend to call it resilience, resilience building, advising on resilience and so forth is what the company does. But so much of that is about community, connection to community, trusted relationships, because you need all of those attributes, that community connection, trust, knowing who to turn to uh, at different times, to be prepared for really mundane things in life as well as catastrophic events like fires and floods and so forth. So as you were kind of talking then, there was a certain amount of what you were describing of that, the interplay between the these catastrophic global events, but also the turbulence and disconcerts and sense of discomfort uh, at the local and personal level, which it does all impact. Um, and, and it was making me think about what are some of the things that we can do to help others through yeah, life generally and in particular, if not moments of clarity, moments in time. Yeah, and that actually fits in brilliantly with our next guest and, and the topics we're going to be discussing with uh, Mark McKenzie McCarg. We're really excited to, to get him on the program. Mark is principal of Mark II Consulting, a Victorian consultancy, which he co-founded in 1993. After five years working KPMG management and then also in local government here in Melbourne. And the reason, I mean, there's many reasons why we have Mark coming on to the, uh, the, the podcast with us and having a conversation, but one of the reasons was I found that he was actually building a community enterprise in Yakandanda at the petrol station there, and I actually played footy at Yakandanda, played Aussie Rules um, for a couple of years, nothing special, reserves footy. No, I think it was because I did some work in Yakandanda about a year and a half ago. I'm pretty sure I saw your name on the entrance to the town. You've got, you've got the keys to the city, right? Absolutely. I've got a funny story for you, um, Toby, if you want to hear it, about Yakandanda, my first game of footy, Yakandanda versus Beechworth. And I'm fairly certain 
Beechworth Footy Club at the time had a couple of people at the mini, minimum security prison, you know, having a run down in um, in the reserves. And I'm, I, I didn't know this and um, playing pre-season, it's building up, we're ready, we go out there, good game of footy. And one guy just constantly, just a little bit of harassment behind play, you know, little pushes here and there. <laughs> and uh, and in, in one instance... Um, I, I saw he had the footy, so I lined him up for a, a, an inc- I thought this is going to be the best tackle of my life. I'm going to really bury this guy in the ground here. And I, I, I did it. I, I went up and got him, but <laughs> I was on top. And within within seconds, I reckon there was about ten blokes just over the top of me just punching me in the back of the head, the back, the kidneys, the my boy, I was just being bruised and battered from everyone. I'm like, what have I got myself into? And I look up and I see um, a couple of yak guys running towards me and they're like, ah, oh, it's, it's Barney, you know, he'll be right. <laughs> and, and, off, and we kicked a goal because I distracted enough of the team. Um, <laughs> but, but I thought... I won't be doing that again. Um, a bit different from uh, junior footy and <laughs> suburban footy. But... What happened after the game is even funnier because I was living in Aubrey at the time and I got a lift there and, and as I'm putting on my tracksuit pants, you know, getting a bit uh, changed near the car, I decide to put my phone, my wallet and my keys on the roof of the car and I decide not to get those items upon entering the car again. They're, they're stuck on the roof. I did not know. I didn't um, – was none the wiser. It's probably the concussion from the earlier punch <laughs> right. in the back could of the head. Could have been. And um, in the car and hear this weird noise, like going 100 k's on the on the highway, hear this strange noise and I'm like, oh, what was that? You know, and they're like, oh, no idea. Did something hit the roof? And I'm like, it sounded like a branch sort of slid across the roof or something. And then it hit me. I think that was my <laughs> I think that was my keys. <laughs> and I frantically in my pockets looking, no keys, no wallet, no phone. Um, we stop the car, we go back, tra- retrace where we could have um, found some stuff. And it was the keys. Found them after about 20 minutes of searching in like a bush off the side of the road. It was just oh, yeah. sparkled in the light just perfectly. The wallet and, and um, phone nowhere to be found. Called up a few of the guys at the club and they, they found it in the, you know, as we were turning out to get out of the Beechworth home ground car park. Yeah, someone had picked them up. The phone was run over a few times by multiple sets of car tyres and I lost that phone. But I did get my wallet and my keys, which were the Which just goes to show, I mean, I don't know what the recidivism rates are for Beechworth Low Security Prison, but I mean, obviously that's, you know, the correctional facility is going pretty well because it seems you can leave wallets and keys and they come back. Yeah, absolutely. And, And all good blokes shake hands after the game, happy days, but... And that's part of a day's work in country footy. But, you know, a little bit of an anecdote to start us off. But we're actually going to hear a, a lot about Yak and Dander and about Mark's work there and what a wonderful place it is um, in this conversation coming up. So, yeah, really looking forward to learning so much more about how to build a community in a, in a regional town. I think that's enough from us. Over to Mark. Mark, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Thanks, Matthew. Hi, Toby. How are you going? Well, thanks, Mark. Yourself? I'm very well. So to get us started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your 
work that you're doing currently. What what is what are you doing, and what have you been doing in the last few years professionally? Professionally, well, I work as a management consultant. I work for in a small consultancy business, and my recent work, well, in very recent times, my wife took long service leave, and I've uh, taken a lot of time off in the first six months of this year. But before that, uh, a lot of my work was focused on um, community-based renewable energy projects. And I suppose before that was a thing, most of my work was in sort of government strategic planning sort of work, things like feasibility studies and preparing business cases for investment projects. I, I noticed that you, you've had a long journey in, in the field. You started sort of in Melbourne with local government work and then moved to KPMG and then moved to starting your own business as well. How did that all occur? Were there events that made you want to move on and to work for yourself and to start something new? And also, when did you move from the big smoke in Melbourne to country Victoria? There were events that made me uh, want to move on. When I I left school, like I think most 18-year-olds, I I really didn't have any notion of what I really wanted to do, so you end up doing something. And uh, I went off and I, I did a, a business degree and then I worked in local government and, and that served me well. But I had this sort of yearning 10 years down the track that I, I, I felt that I could do something different and wanted to try something different. And I also wanted to get out of uh, out of government and into the private sector and that's how I managed to uh, uh, get into KPMG consulting in the late 1980s. So it was really just about doing something different that probably led me in that direction. And... Then some years after that, in the early 1990s, I had an idea that I could start my own business and work for myself and uh, another colleague from KPMG had the same idea. And so we set up what is the current business that I run, which is 1993, which is what nearly 30 years ago now, um, in as a general management consulting practice. So um, that, that, that was sort of the drivers for me professionally going in that field. Yeah, so lots lots of different twists and turns in the years since then but you mentioned and of course that was all Melbourne based at that time Um, and uh, I suppose the drivers that led me to move out of Melbourne in which happened in 2000 weren't so much they weren't they certainly weren't professional the reality is if I really wanted to uh, do the management consulting thing in the best way I I would have stayed in Melbourne but uh, being a country boy at heart I had a yearning to sort of go and live in the country in a rural community and I was fortunate enough to be able to talk my uh, my wife into it <laughs> she probably didn't share that yearning but but she come with me anyway so that's that's what happened and we moved to Yakandanda in the year 2000 and and just following up on that you mentioned you're a country boy at heart did you grow up in the country prior to moving moving to Melbourne then Yes, yeah, yeah. I was raised in a, a little, a small country town called Walwa in uh, northeast Victoria, which is right up in the corner, you know, near Corion Way. I don't know if you know it, in the Murray Valley. My dad was a beef cattle farmer um, and we lived a very, uh, I suppose, a, you know, just a middle-class farming life there and uh, went off to boarding school when I was about mm, 14, I suppose, 13, 13, I think. Uh, and then after uh, school, went went to went to uni at RMIT and I never really went back to you know the, the farm back in Walwa but um, I had I did want to come back and live in a rural community was sort of the way it worked for me so Yakandanda's kind of well on the way to Walwa but uh closer to Melbourne than than where you grew up 
I guess. You know, being, being self-employed and relocating out of Melbourne, it, it, it's sort of a two-edged sword in a way because, you know, most people who do it, they apply for a job in a, in a town and they either get the job or they don't, and, the, and then they have a, a clear scenario. Do they move there? Well, I didn't really have that. I had to go and find a place where I figured I could, you know, run the business in some sort of a way. So it had to be within striking distance of Melbourne. I had to have have mobile phone communication. So it had to tick a number of boxes. And of course, you know, Yak and Dander did that in its own way. Although I, I don't I don't know how how I made that work looking back on it, to be quite honest, because I managed to make it work in a, a fumbling sort of a way, I suppose. Are you noticing a difference now? I mean, you were arguably about 20 years ahead of a huge part of the Victorian and indeed the global population in terms of going, I can make this work. I don't have to be in a, a major city. Have you noticed a difference sort of post-pandemic, during pandemic, where there has been this huge shift to remote and uh, rural working? Or again, is it just kind of business as usual for you? You've been doing it for 20 years anyway. Yeah, well, well, yeah, I, I have noticed that shift. I mean, it continues on. And uh, but, but you know, interestingly, when we moved here, you, you, I met people who had done it before me. I mean, the, the guy I share an office with in Yakandanda, we got a little office down in the main street of Yakandanda, and the guy I share an office with, he's an IT consultant, and he moved up here a couple of years before me, I guess. And uh, you know, people, pe- people have always been doing this, uh, but it was harder to do. 20, 30 years ago because, you know, internet and communications weren't as good. But it's also true since in the last 10 years, it's it's sort of, uh, it's been really nice. Like we've had people move into our office here in Yak and, uh, you know, people who are in their 40s and they've relocated from Sydney and Melbourne and doing the same sort of thing. And it's, it's a lot easier from a communications viewpoint. But uh, I think in the last two years, people who have relocated here, I mean... It, you could, I could never have conceived, I don't think anyone could have conceived the change to the way, you know, work is viewed that has occurred in the last three years on the back of the COVID pandemic. It's it's just extraordinary and it's, it's uh, yeah, a lot of people wanting to relocate into rural areas and, you know, maybe go to the office two days a week and work from home three and that's all normal now. Yeah. But, uh, and you probably... And I know this is part of the reason that Matt wanted to to speak with you, but have probably played a role, uh, quite an important one, in, in helping to make Yakandanda the desirable place that it is. Um, make Yakandanda great again. Is that what you? That's your slogan, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, you were the guy in the red cap. And, uh, I, might, I might leave that slogan behind. If that's okay. <laughs> and, um, but slogans aside, I mean, you did play that really important role. Um, with the community enterprise and so on, and I know Matt was keen to explore that a bit with you, Mark. Um, can you give us a bit of a history about how that came about and where it is today? Yeah, you know, so you don't sort of, you know, I, I came, I, I came to Yakandanda thinking, like anyone who relocates to a town where you. You've got to find your, your feet and, you know, I had young children at the time so you get involved in, you know, in kinder and school and that's all okay. But the, the issue with the, the petrol station, which is also known as Yakandanda Community Development Company, it's it's sort of just emerged a couple of years, well, maybe a year or two years after we arrived, around about 2002, and it, it was just that the local petrol station was going to shut down 
And that was, you know, that was very concerning to a lot of people in the community. And uh, a group of us sort of uh, got our heads together and thought, well, you know, really this is the thin end of the wedge in a way uh, for a small town. And, you know, I, I think it's important to remember that in 2002 we were sort of hot on the hot on the tail of the 1990s where all the banks, there used to be several bank branches in Yakandanda. You know, these small country towns had had their own small rural economy going. There were shops, the shops were successful. And so small towns have been seeing this sort of, um, this gradual decline of local businesses and people more inclined to go to large regional centres and, you know, the loss of business in small rural townships. So we, we we cottoned on this idea that we should uh, we, we we knew that selling fuel was a, a bit of a mugs game, um, and so we we figured that we had to set it up as a community owned enterprise so that the community owned it, and that's what that's what sort of set us on the path to conceive YCDCO as we know know it. Let's take a step back. Can you describe Yakandanda as a place? What it was like when you moved there, and, and a bit about what it's like today, and then jump into some of the. Um, not necessarily the specifics of the people that that are, that are part of the enterprise, but but what's the makeup of that? Is it all locals that have been there for years? What's the sort of professional background and type of person that's got involved? Young and is going going pretty well. I mean, it's it, it's struggling in, in the sort of post COVID environment. I mean, it's a tourism town primarily. It's a rural and tourism town, and uh, COVID wasn't great for tourism and hospitality businesses. So there's been a lot of businesses struggling off the back of that. Having said that, post-COVID, development's gone gangbusters and there's a lot of building activity going around. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's going OK compared to a hell of a lot of... Well, it's going pretty well compared to a lot of rural townships, I would say, in at the moment. Going back 20, 22 years ago or whatever it was, I feel it wasn't a really uh, doing-it-tough rural town. Yakandanda is a pretty little town. It's an old gold mining town. It's like the almost the little sister town to Beechworth, if you're familiar with Beechworth. Its physical appeal and the streetscape was, was really why we chose to come and live here. We like it. It's got a couple of pubs. It's got a public hall. It's got a swimming pool. So it had all those assets and it was a, a vibrant little community when, when we moved here. But having said that, I, 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 I suppose that the it was sort of at that stage where there was a, a risk that it was going to lose its own businesses, and that risk is still probably there today, but there is also a large community-owned business which is sort of active and, and alive in the town today that wasn't there 22 years ago. Yakandanda uh, wasn't a typical rural town, so I, I was sharing offices when I first come here. I walked down the street and I thought, I need an office, and I walked into the back of this building and there was a civil engineer working there and an IT consultant uh, and a draftsman and people who were just, you know, working out of the back of a small office. So there was a, a little professional, uh, little hub of professional activity already going there. And these are people who had chosen to come. These are the people I was talking about who chosen 30 years ago to come and live in Yakandanda. Um, so in a way, when we, when we started putting our head together on this, we realised, and I, I was a management consultant. I'd spent, you know, I'd been with KPMG Consulting, and I, I know how to, I know how to do this stuff, you know. And uh, we we realised in the room we had the skills. The only skill that we we didn't have uh, at that at those early days was a you know pretty something pretty needed. We never had, we never had anyone who'd ever run a petrol station, so we had to go and find that person. Uh, but that 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 was seven people. 
And we decided to have a go at this and to take over the business. And that involved, you know, we, we each put our hand in our pocket and threw $1,000 in, in, in a, open, and opened a bank account and started trading. That's what we started doing and decided to work out if we could make this stick. Subsequently, I mean, I'm no longer, I need to say, I'm no, I, I haven't been a director of uh, YCDK now for the best part of 10 years, I suppose. So there's been various iterations of the board since I was the chair, but I was one of the found, foundation shareholders with these other, there was actually 10 foundation shareholders. Um, so today there's a board, they're, they're, local, they're local people who are, on the, who are the directors of the company, uh, and there's a shareholder group of around about 700 local families who own the shares in the company. And it's a, it's a, it's a public company. It's an unlisted public company, uh, which means its, its shares don't trade, obviously, on a stock exchange. But it's a public company in every other sense, so it has to have an AGM every year and, the, you know, the shareholders can go along to the AGM and elect the directors and have their two bobs worth about, you know, this and that and what the company should and shouldn't be doing. And you get, uh, and I ask this as uh, someone who's been on the board of a couple of smaller member-oriented boards, not a lot of people, even though people don't necessarily yeah, might support the organisation, not a lot come to the AGM. Do you get better turnout for YCD Co? Yeah, we get, we get a reasonable turnout, but it's not... You know, you don't get certainly don't get seven. Not like the first general meeting when we were doing the share offer, where we yeah. had you know three hundred yeah. people in the hall, and it was they had to write a check out that night, so people have a keen interest if that's the ask. But uh, no, look, I, I think they'd probably on average get twenty to thirty. You know, a lot of people are happy just to go along with it and to know it's there and to you know perhaps receive a small dividend check every year and things like that. And uh, they sort of uh, yeah, they don't need to go to to meetings, I suppose. Yeah. I was in Yakandana, as it happens, for a meeting um, about a year and a bit ago, a year and a half ago. And you mentioned in your description of Yak that it's it wasn't when you moved there and nor is it today doing it tough like some other rural towns. And I was blown away by, A, how beautiful it was. But from the outside, and bearing in mind I was only there three days, there seemed to be a, a sense of unity, uh, something that was bringing people together. You know, there were little things that were actually, uh, I think that they were elks, not yaks, but I'm happy to be corrected on that. But these quite sort of engaging things that were, you know, put up in, in cafes and shops uh, to try to sort of show that it was all part of this particular movement. I'm just, uh, how would you describe the role of YC Deco in contributing to that? sense of place and, and unity, um, unity might be too strong, but there's definitely a sense of togetherness there. Vibrancy, well, maybe that's... A... A, sen- a sense of community. I mean, I, I think clearly, uh, clearly, you know, Waisideko played a role in that at its time and has continued to play a role in it. But I, I suppose I don't, I, I don't want to try and uh, overstate what, what it's... So those little yaks, those little yellow yaks you're talking about... Communities are, are, are sort of are very vibrant and dynamic and ongoing, and something new comes along all the time. So, you know, well after YCDCO, when it had sort of, you know, started to drift into people's distant memory in about 2014, another group of young people came together with another brilliant idea, and they said, you know, renewable energy is the thing. We want to, we want to make, you know, Yakandanda totally renewable by the year 2022. 
Now, that was a big statement. So that that was probably the movement that you're talking about that right. that really garnered another layer of energy. The energy that come from YCDCO, I think, was very strong in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's sort of, it's still there and it ticks away in the background. But more recently, it's definitely been, you know, totally renewable yak and dander or, or try as it's known, that's probably developed that level of community energy. And before that, before YCDCO, I remember there was a, a there was a, a friend here in Yakka, he's an, he's an older man than me, a few years older. And, you know, when we we'd sort of opened the petrol station, he'd come up to me in a, in a private moment and he said, he said, now, now Mark, He's not, a, he's not backwards in coming forward, this guy, by the way. He said, you know, this, this, this is great, but, you know, don't forget what this town was built on. Volunteers doing uh, pretty unsexy projects like, you know, built, you know, building kindergartens at working bees and, and, you know, it's important that that doesn't get lost. So a hell of a lot of what Yak and Dander is today was built a long time before anyone worried about a petrol station. We're just a, a little chapter in that book, and who knows what the what the what the next little pro, you know chapter will be in the next little while. Yeah, that's beautifully put. I'm just going to quick one quick follow up. It's just around where totally renewable yak or yak totally try where they are in their ambitions to be totally renewable by 2022. Well, that's uh, it, it. Was always a big ask. <laughs> they won't be totally renewable by 2022, but. The reality is on, on the back of their efforts, there's nearly 60% of households in Yakandanda that have uh, rooftop batteries. We've got three operating microgrids and it's it, it's sort of, uh, it, you know, Yakandanda is currently held up as a bit of a poster town for, for renewable community-based renewable energy. So, you know, they've done a fantastic job. And uh, I, I can't recall. There's a there's a prediction that you know, with the way you know renewables in the grid are changing, that, that, that I think by about 2027 or something like that, Yak and Dandy should be able to achieve net renewable status. Wow. So, uh, yeah, you know, well, that, that's incredible. I love, the, uh, I absolutely love that. And what we often see as a picture of the country in the city is a place that is maybe less progressive or less ambitious with certain things that. There's maybe some more conservatism, not just culturally, but also with things like renewables. I want to sort of play, play with that with you a little bit. You know, is that true in in what you found in both, maybe if you've got still connections in other parts of rural Victoria as well as in Yekindanda, is it a challenge to promote, I guess, these so-called progressive ambitions or is it actually much easier because you can get this community spirit together, have discussions, actually have one-on-one, -on -one, you know, uh, meaningful chats about the benefits of X, Y or Z, you know, in this case um, renewable energy, but whether it's buying into something for the community, whether it's instead of going out to wherever over the weekend you actually go and build a, a kindergarten, for example, there's that community spirit and togetherness. Would you say that a lot of people, especially in a city, Melbourne, have it really wrong about what the potential is in regional Australia. Well, I think I think the first thing to be said about that is that you, you, there's no there's no stereotypical uh, model for what is a rural community. You know that, that that's a, that's a danger to think that way. Um, in terms of whether I think you know you know communities in Melbourne have it wrong in terms of their perception of commun rural communities, I don't, I don't think that either. I mean, I think there's probably a whole spectrum of, of of different types of communities, and you know I can't speak for other communities, and I you know I wouldn't try to, but I, all, all I can say is 
you know, Yakin Dander is a place which is, a, you know, traditionally has been a conservative sort of farming sort of community. And in recent, you know, generations, I suppose, there's been a lot of people relocating, like me and my family, relocate out of the cities. It's proximity to Aubrey-Wodonga. It's, it's operated a bit like a dormitory town. A lot of professionals can be teachers and, and they can go and work in Aubrey-Wodonga at, at, at jobs as well. So, I mean, I'm not sure we really necessarily mirror image what, what you might call a typical rural community. But having said that, uh, I think every at every stage where we, you know, where I've been involved in trying to do something, and I, I suspect I can't speak for Try either. I suspect Try would say the same thing, is that you know people people who are farmers and people who may be perceived as others as sort of um, you know conservative or you know that that sort of uh, conservative thinkers ha- have embraced progressive moves in this community. Uh, yeah, they want to, they want to see a rationale and they want to understand it and they won't get sold on some sort of um, PC sort of argument or any sort of a. I think they just want to understand why why they're doing it. But but people people buy into the idea of community, uh, no matter what where they fit on the political spectrum. Is certainly my experience. Yeah, and what lessons do you think can be drawn from that? Like I'm trying to think. Part of the reason of this podcast originally was trying to communicate the similarities between people and that we can't stereotype, generalise and think of the other all the time. There are, no matter what background we've got, hopefully we share some sort of value set or or, or share something that is um, similar with, you know, between people um, and, and we maybe just focus on the, the margins of not only society but each other when we find those differences... What lessons do you think can be drawn from the experience you've seen and what you've seen in Yekandanda, not only necessarily for other regional towns or other areas, but also just how can we sell a message that looks to embrace change and bring everyone along with it rather than this, um, you know, you're in Camp A, you're in Camp B, let's argue about it. What what lessons can you draw from your experience? Yeah, good question. Um, well, I mean, I suppose it's, it, it, you know, you've got to look at what, what unites people in the community and what, you know, you, you talked about, you know, shared values and what, what, what we have in common. And I feel like in, in a rural community in particular, it's easy to get people to unite across a political spectrum. I mean, the problem, I, I, if I can digress a little bit, you know, the, the problem is our political system, the, the adversarial political system is more and more going down that American path, in my view, whereby people are sort of see themselves as, as blue or green or red and they're in a trench. And the challenge is, if you want to do stuff, is to sort of find what the, the common ground is across that and to, to not get drawn into that polarising sort of debate. In a rural community, and I suspect in any community, whether it's an urban... In an urban community, it's probably the same thing, but I feel like it... I've, it's possibly easier in a rural community because it's much more defined. It's that idea that, you know, do you want... What do you want our community and our town to look like in 30 years' time? Do we still want to be a town or are we just going to be a locality where we go somewhere else for shopping? You know, is that important to you for your children to to sort of have an image of this township in 30 years' time? That's that's something that you that, that we've been able to unite people across. You know, whether you're talking to someone who's a, a diehard liberal or a, or a green or a, 
or an independent. It's a, we, we've got a lot. You know, we, we have a federal independent member around here. So uh, you know, I, I, I feel like it's that community. What do we want our community to look like? I don't know if I've answered your question, Matthew, but that's uh, no, no, you absolutely did, and. The American pathway was sort of what I was alluding to in my mind as as the antithesis of what we want. Um, and you've just looked at what can we, what do we want the community to look like in thirty years? It's something that we never think of. We've got a really short term view on so much of what we do, yet it's so important to think about what will our kids' lives look like, what will our town that we cherish or our suburb that we cherish look like mm. in 30 years when we're, you know, we want to show, um, you know, shop at the same place, know our community members, uh, you know, get things off the ground. Um, so that's that's what I take from what you said. But also yeah. you mentioned the independent member, I think it's Helen Haynes now. Is that right? Yes. Um, yep. Has that, what, what came first, <laughs> the push for an independent member in Indi and that helped to realise or, or that helped people realise that we can actually make a difference politically as well as, you know, YCD Co. Or was it that the success of multiple community enterprises or community events allowed people to see that something different was possible in this in that federal um, locality? Was it, yeah, what came first? In that regard, well, I suppose the first thing to say is that the, the, the two are not necessarily related. I mean, the, the you know the getting an independent member for Indi uh, is a much bigger footprint than Yakandanda alone. So the two don't necessarily marry up um, in that in that sense. It's not a I don't see it as a chronological thing. Yeah, having said that, so when when did when did the the moves start to try and get quality political representation in Yakandanda? Well, that was sort of around about two thousand twelve, I guess, or something like that. Um, but that was another, you know, at a different level with a with a much, with a much bigger regional electorate wide footprint. Was you know, it was a very empowering experience, and the people. You know, Kathy McGowan was the first independent member for Indi, and 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 she she unapologetically you know sold a message that this is about community and it's about representation and and everything she did was not about looking at Indi and Helen's the same not not about looking at Indi as some some big blob uh, some electoral blob it's about the you know two hundred odd of individual communities and treating every one of those communities as a legitimate individual community, almost like a mini-federation in a way. When uh, Cathy came to Yakandanda, she talked about Yakandanda. When she goes to Yay, she talks about Yay because that's what's important to Yay. And yeah, that, that's, been a, that's been an incredibly empowering thing. Um, you know, I, I think Helen Haynes is, is a fabulous local, local member and doing a terrific job. And that's a very different thing to saying that I agree with everything that she votes on. Not that I'm saying I'm aware of anything I disagree with. The, the point is, what you want is someone just to be honest with you and not to feel like you're getting played some, you know, cheap party, particle political game whereby you speak to someone and they're just, you know, talking rubbish at you, which is the way I always felt in the past. And given your local government expertise and your community, community mobilising, you weren't ever tempted to be drawn into politics yourself? Uh, no, no, I wasn't. And and look, not that I've ever been 
asked to, and I don't sort of see myself in that sense, but um, I, I suppose I'm a little bit, what, what saddens me a little bit, I remember when I was a kid that, I, I, well, I've always sort of had this, this idea that, and if you read about the, you know, the, the founding of Federation and the, the work that was done to, to sort of negotiate uh, the Federation of this country and all that sort of stuff, I, I think about it like, wow, you know, these people did an amazing job and were able to set aside, you know, individual positions and, uh, you know, I, I think politics was an honourable profession at one stage and I feel like that that's under threat here, you know. We've seen what's happened in a lot of spheres, you know, and we talked about the US and it, it's a pretty daunting job in the, you know, in the sort of 24-7 news cycle to, to take on a job in politics these days. So, no, I, I was never tempted <laughs> <laughs> Mike, we were talking a little while ago about things to which one doesn't or may not know the answer and if only one can bottle certain bits of wisdom. I'm mindful of a story a former colleague of mine so I asked him, I had just moved out of the private sector and started working at this initiative, Resilient Melbourne, sponsored by, or hosted by the City of Melbourne, very much local government role. And I said to this guy, Jeff, I was like, so Jeff, you've worked in the private sector before, you know, what, what should I expect coming into local government? He said, well, the big difference, Toby, is that in the private sector, you get knifed in the back. In the public sector, you get knifed in the front. Either way, you get knifed. Um, and uh, I mean, Jeff had a, had a very successful career. He also just had a particular wry sense of humour. But um, I'm just wondering, as you may reflect back on the transition that you made in the other direction, in a sense, you went public, private, private. And, and just sort of any reflections you have on what you found culturally different between that local go as an employee of local government rather than a the large corporate and consulting yeah well it's interesting i liked your little uh your, your little knife story i mean I, I i it was a bit of a uh you know i worked for a bit around about 10 years in local government and uh you know i, I quite enjoyed those formative years for me um and then when i joined you know kpmg uh consulting i, I remember telling people a bit tongue-in-cheek i suppose is that is that you know we're we, you know, we're we're pains to portray an image of ourselves as this group of cohesive group of professionals with expertise in all in all continents in all different spheres and and then people would say you know what's the reality and I said it's like a whole lot of little fiefdoms which are competing for for turf and business and and uh, you know cutthroat or something along those lines and there's a bit of truth in both those things is 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 of course the reality. I mean, I enjoyed the uh, I enjoyed the move into the private sector, and um, I, I think whether we like it or not, the way a lot of what happens in 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 life, you know, in in transport and in, in food and in logistics, is delivered by by a massive private sector, uh, and it's you know sometimes I uh, I get a little bit peeved when people talk about corporate greed too too readily. Because most people I people I encounter in business, yes, they've got a profit motive, 
but profit's not a dirty word and uh, it keeps them going, but most people uh, have a strong sense of responsibility to the to the general community. And uh, if, if you just look at anything that happens day to day, walk into a supermarket and, uh, or, and buy some food, uh, you know, jump on a plane somewhere, it's the private sector which is delivering that service to you. Uh, and, yes, you're paying for it, but uh, that's a ramble. I don't know whether that answers your question, though. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, I guess it does in part. And then by extension, when you think about what going out on your own, creating Mark II, I love yeah. the name, by the way, um, <laughs> has that given you more independence, the freedom to pursue the life that you want more so than being tied to, you know, the large corporate or, you know, the nine-to-five government role and, and so on? It, it definitely has. And... Uh... I've had to work hard in the business to make it to make it work for me, and you know I've got I've got four kids, and they all wanted, had to go to school and then uni and all that sort of stuff. So I had to make it work for me. Um, but equally, it's it's given me a choice to to sort of do things that are, are money earning and things that are community building. And you know I suppose YCDK is an example of that. And uh, you know and right now I'm, I'm a, lot, a lot of what I'm doing right now is working you know in community related projects which essentially are pro bono, but I'm enjoying that. I'm at a stage in my career, I'm in my early 60s, and um, I've got a set of skills that I think I can, you know, uh, use to add value in in, in communities and in organisations, and I'm doing that. I still want to earn some money, by the way, because I need to earn some money, but I can sort of, my balance is a bit different in that respect. And, uh, you know, but by being self-employed, it gives me the freedom to choose uh, how, I, how I sort of make that balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And are you still doing uh, community renewables projects? I know you've spoken about that. Yes, yes. Okay. We've got some community renewables projects uh, looking at um, setting up more sort of community-based batteries, battery systems in, in, in townships. And, uh, yeah, that's that, that I find that I, I enjoy working in that space and hope to keep working in that space. That, that's a space that I'm interested in. So just to outline what, is actually happening in in the community. You've got X amount of houses, or sixty percent of houses, with rooftop solar, and there are yep. they forming mini grids that feed into a battery for people to use when the sun isn't shining. Is that how it's it's working at the moment? Uh, yes, yes, and that that sort of those microgrids and the uh, the battery weren't weren't something that I was directly involved in. That's something that Try Totally Renewable Yak and Danda did and their are important sort of steps along the way. Um, it, it, at the same time, uh, the, the area I've, I've been working with Try on over the last couple of years is that it become increasingly sort of clear to the people who are working on this. You mean, you know, bear in mind, as I said before, they started on this journey back in 2014, so it's eight years ago. And, uh, you know, they got, we, they got an uptick. They got, they got grants to do this sort of stuff and, uh, you know, everyone with a, a nice sunny position put solar power, you know, there was rebates and panels on the roof. But increasingly the township is sort of, you know, it, it could be argued that a lot of the low-hanging fruit has been picked for the town. And so the, the, as a community we're suffering sort of the, you know, the, the suffering at the hands of the law of diminishing returns. So every step further forward is harder. So there's lots of houses that don't have solar, but there's a lot of trees in Yakandanda. There's a lot of rental properties. There's a lot of uh, heritage properties. There's a lot of rooftops that don't necessarily have good solar orientation. And, of course, the big challenge is, 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 uh, is it, it's all about storage. 
you know, really there's there's no sort of easy answer to try and get a town like Yakandanda up to 100% renewable. But And that's why they're looking at things like um, community batteries. And we looked into pumped hydro schemes, for example, and... Uh, we didn't find one that was necessarily that was viable in the feasibility study, but we, uh, you know, we looked at different sites, and so there's a lot, still a lot of work to be done in that space. Well, you're doing other projects around Victoria, I mean, on the some, community rebuilds piece. Some, no, oh. well, we've just we've we've been doing some work with the community of Avenal, helping them. They're very early in their sort of uh, they're thinking about this, but uh, they wanted us to to help them with a strategic plan to say to work out. You know, to basically get their ducks in a row to work out well, what do we focus on? Because it's a it's a it's a big thing for a community to know where to start, particularly um, you know the technical side of it. You know, you know what's a megawatt? What's a megawatt hour? What's behind the meter? What's front of meter? How does this all work? How does it? You know, it's 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 techno speak in a lot of ways, and it's hard to get your mind around all that sort of stuff. But it, it is really the the next wave, and it's so exciting that you're part of it. I, I know Dalesford have the the wind turbine that's sort of community owned. Hepburn, yeah, Hepburn, yeah, and um, yeah. and and there's a real push for. Well, you mentioned the tourism industry earlier. How are you going to be a hub for EVs um, to to make sure Yakandanda is the place to stop when they're on their way, you know, northeast from Melbourne or through Victoria? You know, all of these questions are coming into effect now, and there's opportunity. Mm. So I guess, you know, you're taking the bull by the horns here and really, I guess, trying to, to work out the way. So you mentioned that pumped hydro wasn't feasible. A bit off business but more towards you now, Mark. What is it that you see as a, a little bit of a utopia or, or a positive vision going forward in the next 15, 20 years when we seem to all be stressing and, and worrying about the climate crisis and all the negatives? You know, what positives have you... Um, are you looking forward to over the next decade or two? Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, so not specifically just in the renewable space, just in a general sense, I'm taking what you're saying. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'd like to see, yeah, I, I suppose my big passion is is not is, is more about sort of vibrant rural communities. I come from a little town, you know, Walwa, which has done it very tough and is still doing it very tough. And every time I go back there, I look at it and I think, God, this is a, a lovely little spot. It's right near the Murray River here and, you know, it, it, it'd be great if people could just be coming back to live here and uh, and it sort of got a, got that vibrant feel. I remember when I was a kid, you know, there was a, there was a butcher shop and a bakery and it was it was a happening place. So I suppose I, I, I if, if you ask me what the, the sort of vision or the dream is, I, I'd just like to see the sort of rejuvenation of these small rural communities. And, to, and I don't know whether it's possible to, to sort of reverse you know, that rural decline trend, which has been going on for 50 years, you know. I'd, I'd love to see that. But there's, and, and my argument is there's a decline in the cities too. I think outer suburbia, even middle suburbia, seems to be lacking the immediate 20-minute neighbourhood, to quote a previous guest of ours, um, James Mann, who's working on that project. You know, 20-minute neighbourhoods, that's readily available in a small town, in a community, but it's, it's disappearing... Yeah. As you said, from some of the smaller ones, you've got to drive to, to Wodonga to get your, your groceries now in certain parts or whatever it might be. But it's also happening here in, in Melbourne. If you live in, you know, Mill Park, you might work in the city, you might, you know, have to go across town to, to get something you really need. It's not readily available. You have to step in your car, your vehicle, or, you know, drive and park at the, at the train station to get anywhere. And you just don't have those 
mechanisms to live and and thrive in your local community where you live. It seems to be a problem that's in regions, but also in um, in cities too. What do you think is a remedy? Or, or let's go two ways. What do you think's maybe causing that? And then what could be a remedy for that? Knowing that to answer this question, you become an instant millionaire. But, but you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm just just foraging around here looking for that magic wand that I've got sitting here in the drawer. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is a good question, but, you know, we're, we're all part of it, aren't we? Because we, we're the ones, it's, it's, it's you and I that make that choice to get in the car and drive across to whatever it is we, we, we do there. And, um, you know, I try to do as much shopping as I can here. In fact, I'd say I do all my supermarket shopping in the small supermarket. Every time you do that, you get, you, there's a choice there because I'm damn sure that I could get the same product for significantly less if I drove into a dongle and went to Aldi or something like that, you know. So uh, everyone's got to make a personal choice about how they behave numerous times every single day. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not sort of questioning why people might do that. A lot of people are, in, you know, are perhaps not in the economic situation that I'm in. You know, they, they, they need to, to, to watch their pennies. So I'm not being judgmental by any stretch about people who do that. But in the suburbs, I, I sort of... Yeah, it's a difficult thing. Uh, you know, hopefully the uh, the advent of the e-bike and you know, the, I think the bicycle, the bicycle era, hopefully is going to make a difference to this. Difference to this um, that you know people people will start a new business locally there in Mill Park or wherever it is, and that people will choose to 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 go there and to support it, and it will go okay. You know, but yeah, I. Uh, I think I think in a small in a rural town like us, which I can't really you know, speak for, I suppose a uh, an urban community. Well, I can't speak for any community, but in, in Yak, I think that you've just got to, be, got to be constantly vigilant and got to constantly keep a conversation going that says, "Hey, community is important. Uh, where you shop is important, because it's very easy for people, the population generally, to detach from that and to go off and you know make a choice to drive somewhere else and spend some money." Thinking that that's okay without realizing that there is there is ultimately that if everyone did that there'd be damage done to the township and how you want the township to be. It's funny yeah. as you were as you were talking about the choices that we make and, and that we kind of are fundamentally part of the problem or part of the solution. You were reminding me of the words of a friend and former colleague, a guy called Michael Michael Berkowitz, who's the founder of something called Resilient Cities Catalyst. And as it happens, Michael is a massive uh, advocate of cycling generally and specifically for urban mobility uh, and one of his kind of pet phrases which absolutely talks to what you were saying even before you mentioned the cycling as a possible solution was uh, you can't sit in, in traffic complaining about the traffic you are the traffic that's precisely right yeah, yeah, no. good point we spoke um, off air about a cycling trip you did what what do you do personally um, that brings you joy, that revitalises the way that you think about the world and the way that you connect with people that you know and love? What makes you want to make your community better than it can be rather than just sitting in traffic and complaining? What makes you do the work that you do, Mark, and, and, and live the life that you do? Well, you mentioned that I love the cycle touring. There's no doubt about that. Um, it's uh, But having said that, I'm paying a price. I'm... I'm I've got a uh, I've got a, a bad wrist as a result of uh, my little uh, well little we did a uh, we did a three week ride in Western Australia and uh, 
But uh, I, 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 I do love, I love getting away on, on a bike with a couple of pannier bags and the tent and the cooker and just going and uh, you just trundle along. And uh, I, I, when I first did it, I found that quite a threshold to get over. I, was, I, was, I found that a hard thing to do. And then you immediately realise what a sense of freedom it gives you, and it's 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 a sense of freedom when you when you get on a bike and you're trundling along without a car that I, I hadn't experienced since my early twenties. So I want to do more and more of that, but I have to get my wrist better before I can do more of that. Yeah. Good luck with your recovery for that, Mark. I, as I look at or listen to our conversation and look at your bio on the Mark Two website, I kind of detect a bit of a trend as to themes that have permeated your career. But I could be entirely wrong. I mean, if you were to pick out some things that have, as I say, characterised your career, I guess what I'm erring towards, an overused word uh, perhaps, but um, purpose. And what, what has been the kind of some of the threads that have helped to shape your purpose through your career? Well, I mean, I, I, it, it may sound a little bit trite, but really, uh, you know, family, family, family first and community. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I say that because what I didn't say earlier is that a lot of a lot of the reason I wanted to get back here is, you know, I wanted to be close close to my parents in their in their sort of later years. They both passed away now, but you know, moving here to Yakandana, they were in Albury. I got, a, a, you know, I, so I'm a, I'm a great believer in staying close to family and extended family and. Uh, I feel enormously privileged. I lived a very happy childhood. My parents were, were, were loving and respectful to each other, and I saw that right through my life. And and I know not everyone gets to experience that, and, you know, I wanted my family to experience that. And uh, so I suppose that's... I see that as very defining. But belonging to a community is is important to me, feeling that I belong to a community. In, in my own private time, when I have to reflect on what's important to me, that's one of... The, the, the several big ticket items to me is to is to feel like I belong in a community and that I fit there and that I belong there. Yeah, that's beautifully put, and I guess by extension is part of belonging, not necessarily dependent upon, but certainly enhanced by being an active member of that community as well. You don't belong just by sitting there and saying you belong. It's by actively working to to be part of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to be involved and you have to remain active. Yeah, I enjoy that. Absolutely love it, Mark. The final question for you today is um, related to the the name of this podcast, Moments of Clarity. So, Mark, have you had a moment of clarity that you'd like to share with us today? Uh, Yes. But I I don't know if it's a moment of clarity. I I sort of thought that you you might might ask that and I sort of had to reflect a lot on it. It's more like a a long, drawn-out sort of um, awakening is possibly what it would be. So if, you, if we could get a moment and spread it over several years. Um, it's I your moment. You can do with it as you wish, Mark. I, I, that's it. I can, I can make my own rules. I've sort of, I've sort of got, the, got the drift here. So the late 1990s, I was living in Melbourne. I was happy. I had three healthy, happy little kids and my relationship with my wife was good. I had a successful consultancy business. My office was in Greville Street, Paran, and I used to drive over there daily, and things were pretty good. But then I, I'd come home at night, 
and I started subscribing to the Weekly Times. Are you guys familiar with what that is? <laughs> no, it's a rural newspaper. Right, okay. Where houses and farms are for sale and it, uh, it reports on cattle prices and the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator and wool prices and sheep. And I used to read it, I used to read it cover to cover every night and uh, my wife would look across at me and think, that's a bit weird, you know. <laughs> What's all that about? And I think over time I'd, so I'd look at a, a property and I'd say, look, we could, we could get the hell out of here. We could go and live there, you know. And she used to say, you know, what, what would we want to do that for? And I think over time we, we sort of come to the conclusion that, that, this, that living in a rural area is something that's pretty deep inside me and I, 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 I needed to do this. And so that led to a relocation to Yakandanda in the year 2000. So probably more than a moment and probably not recent. Yeah, no, but it, uh, I mean, you can see when you talk about the things that you're passionate about and kind of where you're at, how that was a really transformative piece in shaping what you've done for many years. Um, Mm -hmm. So, Mark, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Mark. It's, it's, um, It's been a pleasure. Thank you both. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you so much for listening to Moments of Clarity. If you are enjoying the podcast, there are a range of ways you can help us grow and continue to bring our conversations to you. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Moments of Clarity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the podcast player of your choice. This will ensure you never miss out on an episode. While you are there, you can leave us a review. It really does assist us in getting found by new listeners. However, the biggest way you can help us is to share the podcast with friends, family, colleagues and your social networks. We are hoping to build a community here at Moments of Clarity and want you, loyal listener, to help us build it. We would absolutely love to hear from you and always take the time to reply to your messages. You can get in contact with us on Instagram at Moments of Clarity Podcast, via our website, moc-pod.com, or email hello at moc-pod.com. Thanks again for listening to Moments of Clarity. See you next time.